A great time of worship, a great time to be together, lifting high, the most high. I'd like to actually just take a second and change the tone and ask, why are we selfish? It's not what we want to think about right now, especially coming after a a time of worship, but think about it for a second. Why are we selfish? Quite plainly, let me just say, because we love ourselves, do we not? In fact, we love ourselves too much. Can I make a statement that self-love is probably the real pandemic in our world today? Do you agree with that statement? I want to share a story with you. When I was a teenager, one day I had made some plans with my friends. You all know how that goes. But I couldn't drive yet. My mother was going to run some errands that day, and she was going to take me on while she was running errands and drop me off at my friend's house where we had a fun time of playing instruments together, video games, whatever we were going to do. Well, as things happen, her plans changed. And she came to me and told me that she could no longer take me to my friend's house. And I received that bad. In fact, I threw a fit, probably one of the biggest fits I'd ever thrown in my life up to that point, so much so that she finally gave in and went out of her way to take me to my friend's house and effectively ruined her afternoon. That's what self-love does. This morning, I'm excited to introduce our new study in the book of Esther. I'm looking forward to this study. I've been looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to digging into this marvelous book and unearthing the truths that God wants us to learn. We're going to start off this morning by looking at a king who's infected with self-love. King Ahasuerus. He loves himself way too much, and we're going to see from chapter 1 what that causes him to do. But first, I want to give you a little bit of background, going back sometime before the book of Esther. The Israelites, you may know, at this time in history, have been in exile. In fact, in 586 B.C., at the end of 2 Chronicles, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Assyria, sacks Jerusalem and leads Jewish exiles to Babylon. This was actually the third time that Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem. This time, he leaves only the poorest of the poor among a ruined city. Basically, there's nothing left of Judah. Some years earlier, Israel had also been carried off into captivity because both Judah and Israel had forsaken God. Though God in his grace had sent them many prophets, warning them what would happen, the Israelites failed to repent. And so God carried out the curse that he put in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that enemies would come and subdue them if they forsook him. Some 47 years later, in 539 B.C., Cyrus of Persia overthrows the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. 
Assyria fell to Persia. And the next year, Cyrus writes a decree for the Jewish people to return home to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, the priest, led the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple, finishing it around 516 B.C., 70 years after they'd been carried off to Babylon in accordance with the Lord's prophecy that Israel would be exiled for 70 years. The setting of the book of Esther takes place after the 70-year exile. Between the return of the first Jewish exiles led by Berubbabel in 538 B.C. and the second return of Jewish exiles led by Ezra in 458 B.C., the book of Esther takes place. So by this time, in the book of Esther, the temple had already been rebuilt. The 70-year exile was technically over. However, many Jews still remained scattered throughout the provinces of the Persian Empire. And this is extremely important, as we will see as our story unfolds. One of the purposes of Esther was to explain the origin of Purim. Purim, you may know, is a Jewish holiday that celebrates the deliverance from the enemies of the Jews during the events that took place in the book of Esther. And the writer of Esther, who is unknown to us, wrote to explain the holiday's origin. But much deeper than the origin of Purim is the theme of the providence of God. Providence. Providence is God's sovereignty at work. One commentator describes providence as it's how God orchestrates everything to accomplish his purpose. That's providence. Now, one important thing to note about the book of Esther, she, Esther, is not the main character. You might think she is. The story is laid out much like our modern novella, where it develops as a story would develop in our day and age, but she's not the main character. The main character is never even mentioned. God, Yahweh, he's the main character. He's not even mentioned, not once in this book, even at times where it seems like he should be mentioned, he's not mentioned, but he's active. When you read Esther, it kind of appears like a random set of coincidences. You know, if this didn't happen, this wouldn't have happened. If X didn't happen, Y wouldn't have happened. But it's not coincidence. It's God. And as we read Esther, we're going to read about ugliness, brokenness, sinfulness. We're going to read about messed up politicians and messed up citizens. But through it all, God is working. He never stops working. John MacArthur compares the book of Esther to a cosmic chess game between God and Satan. And as you read the book, it seems for the first part of the book that Satan gets the upper hand. But the whole time, God has been positioning his pieces for his purposes. And what happens? Well, let's find out together. So if you haven't done so already, open your, book, your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 1. 
We'll be doing with the entirety of the first chapter this morning. <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal th throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Now, if you grew up in the 5th century B.C., you would know exactly who the author's talking about. Anybody from the 5th century B.C.? No? Okay. We're actually 2,500 years removed from this time, so you might need a little bit of fi a filler as to who this guy is. Ahasuerus, he's also known as King Xerxes, that was his Greek name, he was the Persian king and he reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. He inherited his kingdom from his father, and I've got a map this morning to check out. You can see that his kingdom was vast, all that shaded area, I'm not sure how well you can see that, but all that, that green, blue shaded area was his kingdom and extended from India to Thrace, which is now southern Bulgaria and part of Turkey. The 127 provinces mentioned here are likely smaller regions that were ruled by governors. Now, Susa, you can see Susa circled in red on the map. It was one of four palaces from which the Persian monarchs would reign. Susa was the winter residence for the reigning monarch. It was further south, and the monarch would reign from there during the wintertime and then move elsewhere throughout the rest of the times of the year because of the heat. One commentator said it was about 120 degrees in the summertime there. So being as well off as monarchs were, they went where it was comfortable. Now we're told in verse 3 that in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign, which would have been about 483 B.C., he gave a feast. But not just any feast. This wasn't just a get-together for a meal. He had a purpose behind this feast. We're going to find out why. Continue reading, verse 3. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Now, real quick, this idea of Persia and Media. Persia and Media were separate nations, but they were ethnically related. When the Persian king Cyrus overthrew Assyria, the Medes joined with the Persians, and thus they became the Medo-Persian Empire. Perhaps you've heard that term. Now, in our text, all these high-profile people are at this feast, nobles, governors, politicians, in other words. And I, and I want you to picture this in your mind. They gather for a massive feast. So picture with me plates of succulent meats, mounds of exotic fruits, bowls of drink, on large, elaborate tables. Probably a bad idea for me to be explaining this before lunch, but banquets. By the way, we're going to see in the book of Esther, banquets play a huge role. There's three banquets here in chapter 1. There's a banquet in chapter 2. There are banquets in chapters 5 and 7, and then near the end of the book, there's feasting and celebration. Now watch what happens next, verse 4. While he showed the riches of his royal glory, let me back up, verse 3, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. All these political people are gathered for this extravagant feast and Ahasuerus displays before them his immense riches. Mounds of gold, silver, 
bronze, jewels, and material possessions. It was not uncommon for a monarch to do such a thing. Often monarchs would display their wealth and display their power. And Ahasuerus is doing this now, and it takes him half a year. Half a year to display his wealth. Now, let me just say, if you were to come to my house this afternoon, you're not invited. But if you were to come to my house this afternoon... And I took you around every room in my house, and I showed you everything. I got into the closets, under the bed, in the attic. There's nothing in the attic, but in the attic. I took you to my backyard, opened up my shed, which I like to call our barn because it's almost as big, and I showed you everything that I had. It would take maybe an hour, and you'd be bored after five minutes. So imagine taking 180 days to show off his wealth. Now, I'm not exactly sure what this meant. Did it mean like day one, he's going to just bring in his gold and just show off the gold? Day two, bring in his silver, show on this. I'm not sure exactly what that looked like, but however he set it up, it takes him 180 days to display his wealth. And honestly, that is staggering. Honestly, it's kind of repulsive, isn't it? To think of somebody owning that much stuff. And you'd think after all that time, he'd be done showing things off, but he's not done yet. Look at verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, another feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So at the end of the 180 days, he showed off all of his wealth to the governors, to the high-ranking officials. But then he gives another feast at the end of this time to both the great and small. In other words, everyone's invited to this feast. This is the second feast mentioned in chapter 1, and it takes place in the garden of the king's palace. Now, the palace, as I understand it, was this large gazebo-shaped building, and it was surrounded by this exotic garden. Trees, plants, probably flowers, probably waterworks, pools, and baths, and other things. Most likely, it was a very lush, very beautiful, beautiful, very large place, and this is where the feast happened. Then the author goes on to describe the decorations. Read along with me. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of poffery, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. If you could picture that in your mind, this massive garden, all of these decorations, this mosaic pavement, the detail here is another picture of Ahasuerus' wealth. The author wants you to get the idea he wasn't just wealthy. He was wealthy, wealthy. The palace, no doubt, was dazzling. If you've ever been to a, a, just a, a huge hotel, and you walk into the lobby, and it's just decorated beautifully, I think this would outstrip that. Ahasuerus was trying to impress his guests. Look at verse 7. Drinks were served in gold vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. 
and drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Typically, at a party like this, the protocol was when the king drank, the people drank. But during this feast, that protocol was lifted. And Ahasuerus wanted the people to drink however much they wanted, whenever they wanted. So you can imagine what happened as drink in abundance is served over a period of seven days. This would have made a frat party look like a little kid's birthday. Just picture in your mind thousands of men drinking and drinking and drinking. I mean, the coarse, crude jokes that would have come out of this. The, the many different arm wrestling tournaments or whatever they did in Persian days. The revelry. That's what's going on here. What are we doing? What is this? Who is this king? Ahasuerus is a man with literally anything and everything at his fingertips. We find King Ahasuerus here showing off his wealth, which I said was common at, in, during, among ancient royals. But why? Well, on one hand, isn't what that, that what we do as guys? You know, don't, when you get a new car or a new gadget or some achievement at work, don't you like to show it off? Sure. But that's not exactly what's going on here. Let me give you a little more background. Ahasuerus' father was King Darius. And if that name rings a bell, it's because you've probably heard it from Daniel chapter 6, the King Darius, Darius that was responsible for throwing Daniel in the lion's den. King Darius fought against Athens, Green, Athens Greece in 486 BC, and he was defeated and died. Ahasuerus was then crowned king, and three years after that, he gives this feast. And this, although the text doesn't say it, this lines up with what we know from history, that Ahasuerus was trying to gain support because he wanted to go back and continue what his dad had been doing in Greece. So this lavish party, this showing off of his wealth, all of this was because he wanted to show his officials that he had the resources to take down Greece. He spends all this time, half a year, to impress them because he wants to gain their confidence. Why? Because he's a man in love with himself. And he will do whatever he has to do to accomplish what he wants. And that's what self-love does. It uses anything and everything for its own purposes. That brings us to our first point this morning. Point number one, self-love exploits wealth. Self-love exploits wealth. King Ahasuerus is flaunting his treasure to convince his political leaders that he can finance the provisions necessary to finally take down the Greeks. And by the way, he's successful at gaining their confidence. History tells us that Ahasuerus did march to Athens, Greece, and he did fight against the Greeks. And ironically, he lost. 
In 479 BC, King Ahasuerus watched as his navy was destroyed at Salamis. What good was his treasure then? He'd spent all that time, and yet he failed. The idea of exploiting, by the way, is to take full use of or to take full benefit from something. It's not always negative. Exploiting is not always negative. Sometimes it's positive, taking full benefit of something. But it's often used in a negative way. In King Ahasuerus' case, he exploited his wealth, hoping to gain the support he needed to extend his empire and to avenge his father, but he failed. And you see, that's something that self-love does. Self-love is cancerous. It seeks only to gratify itself, but ends up consuming itself. Self-love seeks out ways to gain advantage, trusting in its own resources. When we exploit wealth, what we're really doing is we're trusting in the resources we have or the resources we want to have. And with that in mind, I would ask you, in what ways are you loving yourself? You might say, well, how would I know if I was loving self? Well, then I would ask you this, what do you exploit? Or maybe put it a different way, what do you trust in? How are you depending on material things rather than God? How are you putting your hope or security or gratifying yourself in what you own or what you would like to own rather than in God? Let me give you a small example. Remember Blockbuster Video? When was the last time you were in a blockbuster video? If you know anything about their history, you'll think at least 12 years. Well, I remember in the 1990s, going to blockbuster was a Friday event. My dad would get off work, we'd go to blockbuster, we'd get a movie for the night, we'd have fun as a family. It was honestly awesome. Blockbuster stores were everywhere, which honestly was part of their problem. As the industry began to change, things like Netflix came along and you could pump the entertainment into your home without leaving your couch. Blockbuster refused to change. Instead, they depended, they trusted in their stores. They believed people would keep coming, but the problem is they didn't. And in 2010, Blockbuster went bankrupt as a result of trusting in their stores and failing to keep up with the changes in industry. Now, how do we fall into this trap? It's really easy. We pursue jobs, cars, houses, material possessions, even good food. <clears throat> Excuse me. We get caught up in the ecstasy of all of these things, and somewhere under the surface, deep inside, our hearts fool us into thinking, this will gratify me. This will gratify my deepest desires. This will make me happy. I'm going to exploit X, Y, Z for me. We put our trust into so many things. Why? Because we're looking for something to make us happy. Why? Because we love ourselves. 
John Piper says, your love for yourself is very simply your desire to be happy and to do whatever it takes to make your life the way you want it. I want to read that again. Your love for yourself is simply the desire, your desire to be happy and to do whatever it takes to make your life the way you want it. Now, what's so wrong with that? Honestly, in and of itself, nothing. In and of itself, nothing except our self-love is motivated by selfishness. We love ourselves too much. That's the problem. Ahasuerus loved himself too much, and he used all he had for selfish reasons. And we stop and think, are we really any different? No one in this room has the amount of wealth that Ahasuerus had, but what has God given you? And how does that snatch your affection away from him? Nothing is wrong with possessions. Don't misunderstand me. Nothing is wrong with wealth. But when we are so consumed with material things, looking to them for satisfaction or exploiting them to gain something else in hopes of gaining satisfaction, we are a far cry from what really satisfies and what's really important. So I would ask, in what ways do your possessions or the possessions you would like to have dominate your heart. Self-love exploits wealth. Let's continue our story, verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women, third feast mentioned in our passage. She gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, the queen, of, of course, would have had her own apart apartments. She would have had her own estates. She would have had the, the room and the space to entertain, just as the king did. However, what's interesting here is that Persian culture did not dictate men and women eating separately. We're honestly not given a reason why the queen was not with the king at this time. However, one commentator suggests that their separation at the feast may foreshadow their separation to come. Verse 10 reads, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistah, Harbanah, Bigthah, and Abigthah, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So it's the seventh day of the feast, last day of the feast, and it says that the king's heart was merry with wine, which is a nice way to say that he was drunk. The party had been going on for this whole time. Perhaps he wasn't drinking the entire time, but by this time, he's been drinking enough. And it's interesting to note, history records that Persians would make important decisions while drinking. In fact, their officials would gather together to drink and to make plans for war. And then when they would sober, they would validate the plans. Not exactly a great idea. But that's possibly what was going on here. And something else I want to point out from the text. He mentioned seven eunuchs. Now, eunuchs served the king in various capacities. And to be honest with you, eunuchs were very valuable to kings. As awful as it is, Eunuchs were highly valued because they couldn't have families to distract them from serving. They could also be entrusted with the king's harem because they posed no sexual threat there. They couldn't have children 
by anyone, including the harem, so there was no chance of a child, not the king's, to be mistaken as royalty. And they were less likely to be involved in conspiracies because they couldn't have heirs to subvert the throne. So as awful as it is, you can see from a king's point of view why they were so highly valued. Now, the reason he sent seven isn't exactly clear, but it's probably another way of flaunting his possessions. One servant would have done. Go get the queen. But he's showing off, so he sends seven. Watch what happens. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, having shown off his massive wealth, taking 180 days to show it off, he now wants to show off his greatest treasure, his queen. But Vashti refuses to come. And this verse and her response have been greatly debated amongst people. Some people say that her refusal was sheer defiance. She's entertaining women at her own feast, and in front of these women, she wants to save face, so she's just outright defiant. No, I'm not coming. That's possible. It's possible she was simply defiant. But there might be more to the story here. The reason for her refusal isn't given in verse 12. The queen, of course, was expected to come like everyone else was expected to come. The king had absolute authority. But there's some interesting details about Persian culture. At this time, it was prohibited by law for royal women to appear in public. If a royal woman had to travel, she would travel in one of those enclosed carriages. You've probably seen them in movies. The only women who were seen at parties like this would have been dancers and concubines. So for Queen Vashti to come and be visible would have been beneath her station. She would have been treated like a common slave girl, in other words. She could have refused simply out of respect of the culture. And there's another interesting possibility here. History tells us that this same year that this feast went on, Artaxerxes, the heir to the throne, was born. It actually could be possible that at this time, Vashti was very pregnant and unable to come. So whether she was defiant, whether she simply refused out of respect for culture, or whether she was unable, simply just unable, she didn't come. Whatever reason, the result was the king lost face in front of those he was trying to impress, and he got angry. Our second point we see from the text, point number two, self-love exploits people. Self-love exploits people. Now, We've already talked about how King Ahasuerus exploited his wealth to gain support for his campaign against Greece. Now we see he's exploiting people, namely his wife. He is drunk, and he's honestly acting like a fool, because if you stop and you think about it, who in their right mind would parade their wife in front of a huge group of drunken men? Someone who loves himself. That's who. You know, using wealth and possessions to gain approval or increase status is bad enough, but using people is downright appalling. And if you think about it, he's not just exploiting the queen. He's been exploiting his whole military this whole time because he's trying to gain their support to go and do what he wants to get done. Ahasuerus will use anyone and everything to accomplish his purposes. Do you know anybody like that? 
Let me share a story with you. One time in college, there was a guy that I knew, but I really didn't have a relationship with. I'd spoken maybe two or three words with him, you know. Out of the blue one day, he invites me up to his room to play video games. Now, I thought it was a little weird because I didn't have a relationship with this guy, but I thought, hey, video games, cool, all right. So I went and spent about an hour playing games with him, and that was that. The next day, you guys remember cassettes? I had a mini cassette recorder, mini cassette. About four of them would, was about to take up the size of a regular-sized cassette. It was awesome. I miss cassettes. Well, this guy just out of the blue asked to borrow it. And then it clicked. He was trying to butter me up because he wanted to borrow my recorder. And to be honest with you, if he'd have just asked, I'd have said yes. Why did he think he needed to get in my good graces? I don't know. And that's a minor thing. That's a minor thing. I felt a little used, but that's a minor thing compared to Ahasuerus. Honestly, I hold no ill will toward that guy. But my point I'm trying to make, be careful not to exploit people. Be careful not to use people. Be careful not to use a relationship as a means to an end. You might ask yourself, how do I know if I'm exploiting someone? I mean, after all, the Bible tells us our hearts are desperately wicked and we could be exploiting people and not even realizing it. One way to know you're exploiting someone is if you get angry when they don't want to do what you want to do. Again, we're talking about self-love here. Another way, if you find yourself constantly pointing out somebody else's mistakes and weaknesses to make yourself look and feel better, that's a sign you're exploiting someone. If you have somebody that works for you and you're constantly wanting them to do their job, which is good, but you never express gratitude or appreciation for that person, that could be a sign that you're using that person as a means to an end. Relationships are tricky, yes. And I know you sometimes will catch yourself doing things like this, but that doesn't automatically mean you're a bad person. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is we need to be careful with our relationships. We need to let love be our guide, not self-love, but love for others. So the queen refused to come. The king gets angry. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but an angry king is not a good thing. What does he do? Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshanah, Shethar, Adamathah, Tarshish, Meres, Merasanah, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom. So the king gets angry, but the first thing he does is he gathers his most trusted advisors. And let me just point out, that was a wise thing to do. Not make a rash decision, but to bring in advisors. Let's talk about this. And let me just point it out there. If you're struggling with a decision, talk to wise people. That's a good thing to do. Talking with trusted people is smart, but you have to be careful who you talk to. These men had agendas of their own. And these men, by the way, they would have been high-ranking officials. It says they saw the king's face, which meant that they were close to the king. Not just anybody could get close to the king. You ever tried to get close to the president? Don't try it. Not just anybody could get close to the king. And by the way, 
It says these were the king's wise men. It's very likely that back during the days of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel would have been among these men. By this time, Daniel's probably dead, but back when Nebuchadnezzar reigned, he was probably among these men. What do they do? Verse 15. King Ahasuerus asks, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. In other words, all your guests. Verse 17, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women a.k.a. all the wives of your guests who are right now at the feast with the queen, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. What happened to you, O king, is going to happen to your officials, and you'll lose your support. Vashti is about to undo everything he's been doing for the last 180 days. Beware the power of a woman. No wonder he's angry. They're saying, this is bad, king. This is very bad. You know what's motivating them right now? Anger, yes, but also fear. Fear is motivating them, fear of losing control. You want to know the ironic thing about King Ahasuerus? He had total control of an empire that almost encompassed the known world at that time, but he could not control himself, and he could not control his queen. The fear of losing control, or you could say it this way, the fear of losing respect. Did you know the deepest need of a man is to have respect? Did you know that? The deepest need of a man is to have respect. And King Ahasuerus is about to lose not only the respect of his queen, but also the respect of his officials. What are we going to do about this? Look at verse 19. This is Memu Khan still speaking. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him and let, let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that when it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Now the royal order here was a ruling that could not be revoked. And there's one of two possibilities why. It, it, it was either written in law that not even the king could revoke this or it may have been considered shameful for the king to reverse something that he'd put in order. We're in an honor-shame culture here, and to doing anything shameful would have been extremely bad, bad press, and it might just be that the king changing his mind would bring shame upon him so he was unacceptable or unaccepting to do that. In other words, once this ruling goes into effect, there is no turning back, and that is very important because it, it introduces an element that is of huge importance to our story. Now note here, Vashti is not executed, although he probably had the power to do that. She's not divorced. 
She's made an example of. She's demoted. It's actually likely that she stays within the king's harem, but would no longer be able to come before the king, which means she's not even free to marry another man. Once you're in the king's harem, that's it. You belong to him. In other words, she is essentially banished within the kingdom. She's a prisoner, and she has absolutely no hope of any kind of life. Verse 20. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, this is Memucan still speaking, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Verse 21, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Last point this morning, self-love exploits power. Self-love exploits wealth. Self-love exploits people, and self-love exploits power. The king has absolute authority, and because of anger and fear, he and his advisors resort to forcing all the women in the kingdom to honor their husbands. The fear of losing respect drives these men to force respect from women, which is really no respect at all. The king's self-love has caused him to use his power to manipulate and control every woman in his empire. He responds to his own fear by putting fear in others. And that's what self-love does. Now, I know that no one in this room has absolute power like Ahasuerus did, but we all have power to one degree or another. Some of us are physically stronger than others, Some of us hold positions of authority. Some of us are well-educated. Some of us are, you could go on and on. Power is not a bad thing. After all, God has infinite power. And what kind of power has he given you? What kind of power has God given you? And how do we use our power? Do you use your power to influence or to intimidate? Do you use your power to help others or strictly help yourself? Put a different way, do you keep yourself under control when tough situations occur? When you're faced with a situation where you could exercise the power to dominate the situation, do you instead look for ways to love? Perhaps a good example of this would be a parent. Parents have power. And we could either use our power to dominate our kids and force obedience out of them, which would likely later result in a child going astray, or we can use our power to love. And God give us the strength to do that. This passage shows us three things we see about King Ahasuerus. He exploited his wealth to gain the confidence of his soldiers. He exploited his queen, or tried to exploit his queen to show her off. And he exploited his power out of anger and fear to dominate the women in his kingdom, all because he was affected with self-love. Now, I said earlier, we all struggle with self-love. And after... 
we walked through this, you might think, well, the way to conquer self-love then has got to be to self-loathe. But that's not the right answer. You know, we're never told in God's Word to hate ourselves, ever. Interestingly enough, we're never told not to love ourselves either. We're never told not to love ourselves, and we're never told to love ourselves according to God's Word. What the Bible does tell us to do is to love others like we love ourselves. In other words, the depth of your love for yourself, love others in that way. Now, don't misunderstand me, because the Bible's message is not love yourself more and more so you'll love others. That is not the Bible's message. The Bible assumes what is already true, that we love ourselves. We just do. The problem is we love ourselves too much. And the way to balance that, the Bible tells us, is to love others like we love ourselves. See, I wouldn't say that love for self is a product of the fallen world. I wouldn't say that. I would say loving ourselves too much is a product of the fallen world. So what do we do about this? We love our neighbor as ourselves. We seek their good in the same way we seek our good. We seek their comfort in the same way we seek our comfort. We seek their protection in the same way we seek our protection. But how am I supposed to do that in a world where all I can think of is me? Because I'm broken. The way to do that is to fix our love on Christ. Fix your love on He who loves you without measure. What is the gospel? The gospel is simply this. I am wretched, but I am loved. I don't deserve it, but I'm forgiven. And I'm loved and I'm forgiven so that I'm free to love God and by extension, other people. I want to show you something here. I said this earlier in the introduction, but everything that has happened in, first, in the first chapter of Esther is, is a set of, everybody looking, coincidences. Everything that's happened up to this point is a set of, quote-unquote, coincidences. If the king had not gotten drunk, if the king had not ordered his queen to come, if Vashti had not refused, and if the king and his counselors had not put this law into effect the whole story of Esther would not have happened. What's going on? God is at work. He might say, but everything that's happened so far is a result of brokenness and sin. Everything that they're doing, from drunkenness to writing a law, it's all sinful, it's all brokenness true. But God is still working behind the scenes. What does that teach us? That even the most sinful, repulsive acts of men cannot thwart the sovereign plan of God. Here's the mind-blowing truth about God. You are a part of His plan. Whether you want to be or not, you are a part of God's plan. King Ahasuerus did not submit to God. Yes, he was a wicked man, but he was a part of God's plan. 
and so are you. You can either receive him and be a part of his plan and be blessed by him, or you can reject him, still be a part of his plan, but miss out both here and in eternity. Either way, you are a part of God's sovereign plan. How can God, who hates sin, have a plan that involves sinful people? I don't know. He's sovereign. He's in control. And let me say today, if you're sitting here and you do not submit to the God of the universe, you have not found freedom from sin by a relationship with Jesus Christ, don't leave here today without turning to him. Jesus offers forgiveness. Jesus offers salvation. Jesus offers new life simply by repenting of your sin and turning to him in faith. So won't you receive him today? If you have more questions about that, we'll be standing up front at the end of service. Please come up and ask. We'd love to talk to you. Now, follower of Jesus Christ, I want to talk to you. You, are a part of God's providential plan. He's working in your life right now. And your failures will not thwart his plan. Let that encourage you. Some of you have deep regrets. Some of you have made major mistakes in your life. Let me just tell you, whatever lies in your past and whatever failures happen in your present, whatever pain you've caused as a result of self-love, God is not thwarted by that. Forgiveness is plentiful. His love is never ending. Yes, there are consequences for our sins. I'm not denying that. There's even loss of heavenly reward. I'm not denying that. But God has a plan that can't be thwarted no matter our failures. He is weaving a tapestry with the threads of every human life to bring about his providential plan. And somehow, despite our failures, his plan will not be thwarted. And we, believers in Jesus, get to partake in the magnificent blessings of his providential plan. Let that encourage you because no matter what you've done, he's working and he's not giving up on you. He won't give up on you. Right now, God is at work in your life, even when you don't see it. We sang about it. Even when you don't feel it, he's working. He never stops working. The many thousands of coincidences in your life all have a purpose. Let me just add to that. The pain you've experienced in your life, the loss you've experienced in your life, the sorrow you've experienced in your life, it's not for nothing. It has a purpose. One day, we'll be able to step back and view our lives and see how God was working behind the scenes the whole time to incorporate everything into his master plan. John 12, 27, Jesus says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There was a plan, a plan of redemption. 
And Jesus, God himself, made a promise. A promise that he would not repeal even when it came to the cross. The apex of God's plan in human history happened at the cross. The many millions of sins done at the hands of vile, twisted, self-loving people were poured onto the only completely selfless man who ever lived. And when Jesus was praying in the garden, three times he came to the disciples. And you know what he found them doing? Sleeping. Jesus was in agony long before the cross. He was in agony at the garden because he knew he was facing the cross. He knew what was coming, and he had asked his closest friends to watch and to pray during his most vulnerable hour. And what did these clueless, bumbling, self-loving disciples do? They fell asleep. Jesus comes, sees them sleeping. These are the people he's going to die for. These are the people he's going to be scourged for. These are the people he's going to wear a crown of thorns for, be stripped for, be nailed to a cross for, be stabbed for, be mocked for. These are the people who couldn't even stay awake with him. He was doing it for them. And he was doing it for you. Self-centered self-love could only be cured by an act of complete selflessness. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. Preach that truth to yourselves every day. And watch your self-love give way to selfless, God-honoring, others-focused, life-changing, agape love. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You never stop working. You're working right now in the midst of our lives. You have a plan, a plan that can't be thwarted, a plan that climaxed at the cross. You have a plan for each person in this room. And nothing we've done can thwart that plan. Nothing we will do can thwart that plan. You are God and you're in control. But we, God, we fail. We fall so utterly short. We're so consumed with ourselves. God, forgive us. God, help us. God, restore us. Let your love change us from self-loving to others-focused. And let that love change each person in this church. Let that love change this church that those beyond these walls can see we are a church that truly loves because we've been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you and we say all this in your awesome name. Amen.